I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking with Dimitri Dadiamov of Modern Treasury, a startup Y Combinator funded in 2018. Dimitri works in a very important world whose existence is hidden from most people, the movement of money into and out of companies. Listen in as we follow the money. So Carolyn, I'm so excited. We are here today with Dimitri Dadiamov, who is the co-founder and CEO of Modern Treasury, who Y Combinator funded in the summer 2018 batch. Hey, Dimitri. Hey, Dimitri. Hey. It's so great Welcome. to be here. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, we're so glad to see you and can't wait to catch up. I have to share something with you, Dimitri, because I got such a kick out of it. Carolyn, you don't know this story, but Dimitri and I go back to the winter of 2006. Hmm. Okay. He was a student at Stanford University, Mm -hmm. an undergrad, and he was president of BASES, which is their sort of undergrad entrepreneurial society there. And Y Combinator, this was our first winter batch, and we were going to host a startup school. Um, The first startup school we did at Harvard in uh, the fall of 2005 And we thought, well, let's do it on the West Coast. We'll do it at Stanford, right down the road from our offices. So we reached out to Dimitri, and he was like, we'd love to work with you on this. And so I have an email from February 7th, uh, 2006, Uh from you. And you say, you know, hey, Jessica, I submitted the form to get a room reserved for startup school. Now we just have to wait. Then this is the funny part. You said... Could you email me anything with official-looking information about it so that I could show them that this is legitimate? <laughs> Last year's agenda you showed me is good. Any kind of other info is great. I just need to show them that this is not out of the blue and that this will happen. <laughs> A dearth of legitimate materials would probably characterize that era. <laughs> I know. We were so unknown that he needed something that made I mean, us I think seem this legit. Was, there was only one batch. Do you remember who introduced us? Was it Sam Altman? It was Sam. Yeah. And I think he had done the very first batch. And then the uh, there was, I think this was about to be the second batch, was in the winter in, in Mountain View. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, super it, early. It was super well, so, early, but I just was amused at how, how unknown we were. What did you manage to rustle up to send him in the response? Gosh, I don't know. I think I said, sure, I'll send you something. And then I don't know what I found. The only thing I could have possibly wrestled up was we were in a Harvard University like school newspaper for the startup school event. But that was it. There was nothing to wrestle up because there were no news articles <laughs> otherwise about why company. No letterhead, so no nothing. <laughs> no. I mean, I had a business card, maybe. Um, but anyway, we did have the event at Kresge Auditorium. I loved working with Dimitri back then. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? We did. That time. I, mean, I still remember the very first startup school was such a like magical electric kind of moment to have everybody show up on campus. It was at this auditorium called Kresge that's no longer even around. Oh. Um, but yeah, it was super fun. I hadn't realized myself that we actually go back to 2006, like early, early days. So anyway, thought that was amusing. Many years go by and we fund you in 2018 with Y Combinator. But first, I want to quickly go in here to remembering you graduated from Stanford. You had a few various jobs, um, which I'm actually going to ask about later. But um, then you, you start... Uh, working for Lending Home. That's right, the, in 2015. The online, in 2015, yes. Online marketplace for residential mortgages. So you, Sam and Matt, were, were working at uh, Lending Home. 
and you noticed that there was this huge need that was causing you guys pain. So tell me about the moment when you decided to start a company or like what caused you to, to go over the edge and be like, we need to solve this problem. Yeah, we, I was a product manager running the investor side of this marketplace. And so the beginning was we really had to build the user flows for individual investors to come in. And this was mostly like fix and flip kind of renovation loans. So we jokingly <clears throat> would call it internally like ugly Airbnb because it was a little bit like Airbnb, <laughs> but every property had some sort of water damage or some sort of, uh, some sort of issue with it that people were buying and renovating and putting out of the market. Um, and that's what you're investing in. That was sort of the value that, that you'd, you'd get by investing in it. And so, um, you know, we built out the user flows. We built out how do you open an account. We built out all the pieces around how do you upload, you know, like bring funds into the wallet. And then it became like really painful as it scaled because we had to integrate with banks for ACH debits, for ACH credits, for wires, for reconciling all of this stuff, for being able to update the kind of statement in the right time when funds actually arrived. And, you know, this is a problem that a lot of investment, you know, groups might have, but they are doing it at a scale that allows them to just sort of, uh, you know, refresh the bank portal and see when the funds arrived. We were doing 50, 60, 70,000 payments a month. And so you can imagine that this gets pretty painful. And then the thing that I also didn't quite appreciate was every part of the company would come to us with questions about something payment related. And so this was finance, this was uh, capital markets, this was customer service, like somebody calls and asks about a payment that maybe should have gotten there, or maybe it's you know a day late. And people would show up with bank statements highlighted in yellow and just say like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And I had this meeting on Wednesday. I just hated it. You know, that feeling when like you wake up in the morning and it was the opposite feeling that I had this morning when I woke up uh, of being excited for this podcast. It was very different to wake up and be like, I'm going to go into this meeting and we're going to have everyone in the company ask us questions about uh, the, the, these bank statements. And so this was, you know, it started kind of running around just asking friends of friends who worked at different companies and asking them like, hey, you, you guys move money as a core part of your product. How do you guys do this? And I went to, you know, all the companies that you can think of that were in the Bay Area that, that moved money. So whether it was Uber and Airbnb and Coinbase and AngelList and a lot of different companies that, you know, the purpose is different. But at the end of the day, ACH is an ACH, a wire is a wire. And instead of saying, oh, yeah, there's this tool that you should just use and it's great and it's like makes it very easy. All of them said, oh, my God, I have a Thursday meeting and I really hate that. <laughs> and like, if you find anything, like, let me know. So we joke sometimes it was like rage founding. Like, it was just like, oh, my God, like, how's nobody solved that's this? A, it's so obvious. That's a great expression. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just like, you know, like when you see it enough times and you realize mm -hmm. that every one of these companies has a payments engineering team, has a finance team, has an ops team that are like dealing with this like manual drudgery, like day in, day out. And, you know, like this is the kind of thing that computers should be good at. So that kind of led us to say, huh, like, I think we should probably build this as a product because nobody else seems to want to. Yeah. And you guys were naive enough maybe to do it. <laughs> yeah. Enraged enough. Some, some, yeah. <laughs> Enra you we, were, just, yeah. <laughs> we just saw it. We just saw it in enough places that it just, you know, it's a little of the, it's a little bit of that like schlep blindness uh, essay that PG has of just yes, like the somebody needs to do this. So that's interesting. You had this own really pain, big pain point, but then you talked to colleagues, if you will, in other companies, and they had the exact same thing, and no one had a, a, a good solution. That's right. So you saw the opportunity. Let me do one thing, just because this is a sort of a fintech company, and I want to make sure the audience understands what you do. I mean, I know it's like an API to move and reconcile money, but when I asked Paul, hey, how would you describe what Modern Treasury does? He said it's financial plumbing for companies. And I feel like maybe I could just ask you, can you just very simply describe what Modern Treasury does? Yeah, Modern Treasury is a software platform to help money movement. So when you think about money movement, it's a very core, you know, almost definitional re uh, reasoning for why companies exist. And uh, we have a banking system that is, uh, you know, has its own legacy technology. And so it's actually pretty complicated. We think about every payment we think will start and end in software. And that connection between software systems, web apps, mobile apps, whatever it might be, that has some sort of button that says, like, you know, after, after you press this button, money should move. Uh, and connecting that into 
the banking system is quite quite painful. Um, and so part of it is about how do you translate and instruct a, a signal to the banking system? And then the other piece of it is the reconciliation piece, which is once you've done that, what happened? Uh, right. If you think about, yeah. uh, you know, um, you you paid somebody, you want to get the notification that the money actually moved and confirm that and then know that you don't you know, you don't have any issues. A lot of that kind of financial plumbing is is exactly that. It's the connection between the financial kind of banking systems that everything runs on and, you know, whatever fun thing somebody wants to go build. It can be pretty painful, especially at scale. It's one of these things that you can do by hand once you can do it twice. You can do it 10 times. At some point, it's going to break. Right. Uh, and at some point, right. you need automation. Like it was at Lending Home, you were just doing so many. It became impossible to sort of manually reconcile. That's right. And it's a good problem to have, but it's, uh, but it's a real problem. Right. Okay. So you guys think there's a need here. We, we might be the team to do it. Tell me about what, how you first started out and who, how did you convince banks to work with you? Who was your first client? You know, what happened? Yeah, so we started in the summer of 2018. We started, you know, we we got into YC and we started working kind of on both sides of the marketplace, if you will. We have banks on one side and companies on the other. So we started running around and talking to uh, with what banks we wanted to work with. Of course, SVB was a very much a default bank uh, back in 2018 for every startup that was going through YC. So it was a kind of a no-brainer to start working with them. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, we were looking for the right first customer because, you know, one of the things that I think has been uh, is, is really challenging for products such as this is that people might smile and nod and say, this is a great product and we can definitely do this in a better way. But overcoming that like trust barrier to say, and I'm going to trust a three person startup with no funding to take over this very critical thing, which is not yes. core to my business. Like it's not core to a insurance company or to, uh, you know, an online marketplace or what have you to be the best at kind of banking integrations, but it is very critical that it work well. And so uh, people generally don't want to trust like early, early startups with infrastructure decisions for like, for, you know, for a long time. How did you get your first client then? How did you do it? Because I, I imagine this was a huge challenge. My first instinct was to go to folks that we already knew, uh, and it took us a long time, but uh, our first client was actually a classmate of mine who had uh, started a company in kind of the health benefit space. It was a startup. It was three or four people, but they had seen that problem before, and they knew they didn't want to build it from scratch, and they knew they were going to have to move a lot of funds around. And so we started working with them, and SVB is their bank, and that was kind of the first connection of the full um the full triangle, if you will, that, that allowed us to, to go live. But, you know, one thing that was, that's interesting is it took us about five or six months to go live. By the time we ended YC, we, we were not that company with a graph that went up and to the right. Like we, our graph was like flat the entire time because yeah. we were still, I mean, part of it was we're still building uh, the product, but part of it was also that we just, you know, it took a while to get people to really feel comfortable that, hey, we're actually committed to this and we're really going to be around and do this for a long time. That even folks that like were primed to trust us, like actually trusted us to to power their companies. Did you get SVB to agree to work with you before you actually got that first customer? Yes and no. I mean, in a sense that at the end of the day, we are a software product that lives inside the envelope of a company. Uh. And so uh, I remember sitting at actually at this desk, uh, but in a different place, uh, sitting with um, the founder of this company that I just mentioned, and we were kind of calling SVB one off. Mm. And he was saying, you know, I just want you to work with this vendor that we work with. And I would call them five minutes later separately and tell them, I'm just trying to make our mutual customer happy <laughs> and, and trying to get it live. And so, you know, we were, we knew we had built a little bit of this at Lending Home. So we actually knew quite a bit about how systems worked. And so we yeah. were able to have pretty, uh, pretty sophisticated conversations with, with the banks pretty early on, I would say. That must have made a big difference, Dimitri, your your level of sophistication, even though you're you know, relatively young, you weren't right out of college, never having worked in this industry. So that level of sophistication, understanding how things work must have impressed them or given them some confidence a little bit, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. The thing that was amazing is actually, so we went live in October of, uh, of 18 with this first company and literally a month after 
we started getting introductions from the banks to companies. And then by that time, we were live with First Republic and Wells Fargo as well. And we started getting introductions to individual companies who were coming to the banks and saying we wanted to go build something. And they were having a hard time because, you know, on the bank side, they've seen this move before. So they've seen somebody being really excited about it and then have a hard time actually pulling together the resources and the know-how to actually kind of automate this. And here was this company with three people that they didn't think was going to be live. And they're live two weeks later because they used our product. It wasn't like a big formal partnership that came later, but uh, it was uh, on an individual level. We certainly had a few a few champions. That's fascinating, actually. You helped sort of get their the bank's clients spun up more quickly because of what you were offering. Is that right? Yeah. And we charged the companies. We didn't charge the banks anything. So it was a very, it was a good deal for yeah. them. Yeah, I'll say. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think it helped at all that you were a Y Combinator funded company? Did that come up at all? Like with SVB? I'm sure it did. Yeah, they have um, uh, they had a practice for early stage practice, kind of early stage companies. And uh, being a YC company was certainly uh, an added bonus to be kind of taken a little bit more seriously or maybe get a little bit more leeway in talking to, you know, the product people at the bank that, you know, that they maybe would have guarded a little bit more otherwise. Did you go to the original companies that you spoke with to sort of understand the need and say, hey, remember when we had that conversation? Well, here you go. Will you be one of our first users? Did you ask You know what's amazing? I got an email this morning from a company that we talked to in July of 2018, and it's from a like a COO of this company in New York that we had been introduced to by like an investor friend. And it starts, I think it's like, I've been following you for five years. I think it's time. <laughs> we see this quite a bit, you know, uh, for good or for bad. I think sales cycles can be pretty long. Uh, but but we joke sometimes that if we're around long enough, everybody will be a customer because it's a problem that everybody has at some level. Wow. Wow. How long did it actually take to build? Because this, this is something that nobody else wanted to build. And everyone was like, uh, this is a huge problem, but I'm not going to do it. How long when you started to when you actually had that first customer? Uh, five months. Five months. Yeah. But I think the the thing is we really we had built this a version of this before. Okay. And so, you know, one of the challenges of understanding how to build this and why it takes a, a long time oftentimes is that you really need to understand how payments work at a very basic level at the kind of the Federal Reserve and, and uh -huh. so on. So there is this 600-page uh, NACHA book, and it's like all the kind of all the rules and regulations around how ACH happens. And there's all these like weird kind of edge cases that you end up having to think about. And I remember one of the first like photos I have is of Sam uh, who had ordered this book and we jokingly sent it to our like WhatsApp group with our group partner saying like, this is our first use of funds <laughs> is, you know, we spent How like you know, $129 oh, okay. or something. It was like, yeah, it was, it was not that expensive, right. but it was one of those things that, you know, like you really need to understand. So for example, later on, this was maybe a year after that, we, we ended up kind of at the top of Hacker News uh, with a post that Matt wrote, which was what happens when you ACH a dead person? Because there are specific rules and regulations around what happens to banks and how the banks communicate if like somebody's you know deceased and the account is closed and and it's one of those things that like you don't don't think about as that actually happens but at the scale of the banking system it happens and so you end up you end up with yeah. a lot of a lot of edge cases uh, and so yeah it took us about five months to build it um, we built the API and the app at the same time so as much as we all want automation nothing is going to be ever be perfectly automated so there's always going to be you know uh, edge cases and things that people have to do by hand and so we from the get-go we're building like the app as well yeah. but it probably would have taken us longer if we hadn't if we had to learn all this stuff from scratch for sure and then how many you were of course three back then how many employees does do you have now uh, 170 it's oh, a good size Wow. I did hear a podcast that I listened to that you were a fintech podcast that you were on and you were saying, yeah, we weren't the typical YC company because it took us five months to launch. <laughs> you know, we didn't launch during YC. I mean, you've built a really complex product. Of course, it's going to take you longer. And, and investors must have understood that. Right. Right. I distinctly remember one of the one of the uh, Tuesday get togethers with our group. And, you know, we hadn't had any progress that we could like demonstrate at all. And we said something like, oh, we also opened a First Republic bank account. 
And I just remember Aaron Harris being like, you guys are awfully sure this is going to lead to something. <laughs> and, and we were like, yeah, we think it will. But, you know, but, but it took us a long time before we had demonstrable, you know, progress other than like, well, we wrote some code and we talked to some people. It took a long time. Looking back on it, it, it maybe doesn't seem that yeah, long, but at the time it felt like forever. What was the first feeling of like a real win that you would have been like really psyched to report at your weekly group meeting? You know, do you remember one of those, oh my gosh, we got this to work and, and I, we weren't sure if we were going to. It was, it was less about getting something to work and more about having validation from people and companies. One I remember is we, we signed an LOI with uh, a company that was moving like billions of dollars, you know, a year. And it was like, you know, it didn't mean that much because obviously it wasn't a contract. They weren't going to necessarily commit to doing it. But they basically said, this is really like a true problem. And we have a lot of people working on it. And so if you can deliver a better product at a lower price than it takes us to like deliver it otherwise, like we would we would certainly consider it and, and do it. And so that was a big win for us. I think LOIs are a big win, don't you, Karen? Well, they have to turn into real contracts. But yes, absolutely. <laughs> did that one yeah. turn into a real contract? No, not. Oh, shoot. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Five more okay. years will go by and then it will, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay. So don't be offended when I say this, but you are solving a very important, but very unsexy problem that most people don't think about. And even the people that are supposed to be thinking about it probably aren't maybe prioritizing it until, you know, there's a problem, till there's a possible disaster. And I want to talk about last March. And I want to talk about, when was it? I think like March 10th or something when Silicon Valley Bank uh, was basically shut down and everyone's who had their money, uh, their money was frozen. I want you to take me back to that weekend because I remember, you know, I followed it very closely and nervously, as you can imagine. But like, what was your world like? And what, tell me some stories about that. Did you see this coming? So three or four years went by. We've grown a lot. We're 170 people. We have, um, you know, uh, dozens, maybe 100, 100 plus companies that were deeply integrated with SVB. We at this point work with about 30 banks. And so they're not the only bank that we focus on, but it's still a very important bank, especially for the, of course, the early stage uh, clients that we have. So before the weekend, even on like that Wednesday, Thursday, I started getting texts from, you know, investors and folks saying, hey, just like just checking, like how much of your funds as as the company are sitting at at SVB, and and I started getting enough of those where I was like, huh, if this if a lot of these you know hit every single founder, like that's not going to be a a very and of course maybe we're more connected to banks. People thought we knew a little bit more, but you know, to answer the question, no, we didn't see it coming. I mean, I think that it's something that um, no, nobody really saw coming to the degree that it sort of happened and how quickly it happened. And we can talk about what yeah. contributes to that. But, you know, bank runs are pretty rare. Like they, they, they used to not be rare. And then we introduced a lot of uh, kind of regulatory things that made them a lot more rare. And so you don't really expect one to happen. You know, and then all of a sudden we started seeing a lot of people withdrawing funds. And I started getting just a lot of like people asking for advice. I mean, companies that weren't even necessarily customers of ours or like using our products or or like what other banks to talk to. They want introductions, they um, things like that. And, you know, we were SCB has been a really, really good partner for us. I think they were such an important player in this uh, ecosystem. Um, and so we sort of focused on making sure that our existing customers uh, had had a plan B if something happened, but really weren't trying to, you know, insight more more kind of uh worrying to the system uh, mm-hmm. but then on friday morning the fdse stepped in and basically shut it down and so then then it sort of became very real because now you had all these companies and a lot much of it has been in the media around payroll which of course was there's like um, personal ramifications for the employees, exactly. for the for the directors like le- legal ramifications for the directors mm-hmm. all companies that are SCB were worried about that but we had the added complexity that there's companies that run payroll using modern treasury or they run benefits, you you know, or they run things that are just, you know, again, kind of critical to their business. And so, you know, we were doing a lot of introductions and so on. One of the things that we realized uh, probably that Friday night is we had one view that was unique. So there's a lot of people pontificating on Twitter. We actually had something to add to the conversation that was a little bit uh, unique in that we were connected to all the systems, all the payment systems. Um, across the various companies that we worked with. So we put together a status page. 
And we put together uh, sort of a page where we would just update every couple of hours, here's what's happening to ACH, to wire, to reporting, to international wire, what's happening with, like, if you want to send a wire internationally, you have to go send it through a correspondent bank oftentimes. Like, it became something that was being spread around because a lot of, there's so much uncertainty and so much like worry about what was happening. All through Saturday, you know, we're working through the weekend, we're working with companies. Sometimes we're introducing them to other banks. Sometimes they had other bank accounts that they were open already, but they hadn't actually set anything up. So they're kind of trying to rebuild some of their flows. Uh, and then Sunday night, Signature Bank, which is another bank that we supported also, also goes into receivership. Yeah. And so okay. we're like, we got a template. We can go build the status page for Signature Bank. And so we went ahead and, and did that as well. And then, of course, you know, I think the regulators did a really good job in the sense that by Monday morning, they had figured out how to, you know, prop up the bank in a way that wasn't actually that disruptive. So, you know, Monday morning, there's a lot of trust that was shaken. But in terms of actual money movement, like everybody was able to kind of move money through the systems that SUB had. We were kind of monitoring them as they're coming back online. Some things came back faster than others, um, and so yeah, it was a it was a very kind of crazy thing to live through because there's so much uncertainty for every client, and everybody has a slightly different setup. Like, what other bank do you have? What are the ramifications for you of moving or not moving faster? Um, and it was a pretty wild thing to live through, but also a pretty privileged place to just like get to see this uh, kind of historical event unfold. In terms of like financial hygiene. What was a client of yours who who had everything set up perfectly and could handle this like potential disaster with ease versus like an ill-prepared company caught with their pants down, basically? Yeah. So the ill-prepared company, oftentimes they're earlier stage companies, they only have one bank relationship. And it takes time to set it up. It's not super easy. So they go set up an account and then they go maybe set up a couple of different accounts at the same bank where they have like a payroll and operating account where they're maybe that's where they're like equity sitting that they raised. But then they have another account, which is for the purpose of their business. And that account is connected to something like modern treasury. We're able to connect uh, API calls to reporting, things like that. And so if that company, when, when that happened, they had no other place to basically run their operations through. So that's like one end, end of it. The other end of it is a company that had set up multiple bank accounts at multiple banks. And for various reasons, it set up Modern Treasury to connect into uh, those accounts. And that can be, you know, maybe it's a different product. Maybe there's different, like there, there are maybe regulatory reasons. Like banks are actually quite heterogeneous in the services they offer. So there's good reasons why you might want to work with multiple banks um, just at a product level. And so that company was able to basically just say, well, I don't normally do my kind of ACH flows through this bank. I'm going to move it to the other bank. But it's it's sort of an easy thing to do because they've already set it all up and it's working. And then there was companies in the middle that were basically, they had set it up or like they opened the account, the account was open, but it wasn't set up. And so they had to go kind of rebuild stuff over the weekend. So, you know, maybe an analogy for it is imagine if, over the weekend, you have to rebuild your website from Amazon to Google Cloud or something. And you by Monday morning at 6 a.m., you have to be live on, on, on the new one no matter what. And like that's a pretty, pretty tall yeah. order. Yeah, well, I hope people learned a good lesson is to sort of diversify in terms of the bank. I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing um, a lot of boards, I think, are asking companies about like, you know, how many bank relationships and where's the fund sitting and how do we how do we kind of react? But yeah, I think it's something that risk management around banks was not top of mind for anybody and became a little bit more top of mind for, for companies today. We're probably going to end up seeing this in like stock purchase agreements. It's going to be a new company rep, something about banking relationships. But you're right, like this is just not something anyone worried about in the past because had, we had not seen it in this era. No, it was pretty frightening. Yeah. Especially, you know, why Combinator's startups, as you can imagine, had a lot of their money in, in SVB. I have a question, and, and I don't know that much about all of this. Do you think one of the reasons the FDIC acted so swiftly was because it really could have triggered a sort of a national bank run on regional banks? It wasn't just a technology Silicon Valley issue. Uh, I don't think it was a technology Silicon Valley issue in the sense that other banks had also failed or had other issues. It's not specific to startups. I do think there's something new that hasn't existed before, which is the speed of 
how fast you can withdraw funds. So if you think about back in the day, back in, you know, the 20s or 30s or something, if you found out that you had to go withdraw funds, like you probably had to go there in person. So there's a certain feedback cycle to how long yeah. it takes to show up and fill out the form and stand in line. And, and you just like can't withdraw that quickly. I think today, uh, a few text messages and you open up the mobile app and then you just sort of withdraw everything. Like that's a really short cycle for banks to be ready for. And so whether it's WhatsApp groups, whether it's social media, once that kind of panic sets in, that's a really, really difficult thing to fight. And so when you think about it, what that means from a bank perspective, it sort of means you have to have more cash like ready to be accessed from the Fed or from other banks or something than you did before, because the speed with which these things can develop is much faster. Like I think um, I saw the the amount of funding that was withdrawn from SVB on that Thursday and Friday, and Friday like ended at 9 a.m., right? So it was really on just one day, was uh, $42 billion. Wow. And that's basically in like 36 hours. And in 2008, so the, the SVB was like in the second biggest sort of failure. Uh, Wachovia was the biggest one. Like it was something like 40 days to withdraw $10 billion back in 2008. Oh, wow. So just the speed with which with which people are able to kind of move funds around, you know, companies have more amount money. Um, and so, you know, one company deciding to withdraw could be a hundred million dollars, yeah. right? Um, which is not something that we've kind of seen. So I think there is something that's changed a little bit in the banking technology landscape. That's a lot of liquidity to have to have. That's a lot of liquidity. And it's a lot different than from my, the scene from my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the bank run at, at uh, George Bailey's bank. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, I've never seen that movie. Oh my God. Carolyn. Okay. So, wow. The whole SVB thing happened so quickly. Like, I feel like it happened quickly and it was resolved quickly. Was there anything else crazy that you saw within that sort of 72 hours or whatever? Any weird behavior or? Well, I think Surprising there's a lot thing. of I think there's a lot of weird behavior on the part of uh, founders and investors and uh, heads of finance and how everybody kind of responds to, to this type of stressful event. So I think that it you know like anything stressful, I think it shows uh, in some cases what people are made of and what's harder, what's easier for for folks. Um, but uh, I think one of the things that's really ironic or or kind of hard to resolve is when a something like a bank run happens, the, the right answer really on a personal level really is to withdraw the funds. Like you just don't know what's going to happen. Right. And so I think a lot of people faced sort of an ethical dilemma of like, do I, you know, spread the worry and do I contribute to this problem or do I keep my company or my company's uh, my portfolio or what have you safe? Uh, yeah. And it's not, it's not obvious to me that, uh, either side is in the wrong. I think there's like, it's hard. I mean, I think there's a fiduciary duty of like, what you should be doing once you know there's more of an issue and, and, and things like that. But I think that it's really something that, again, nobody's thought of and it just sort of popped up. And when you start thinking about the implications of what can happen, um, you, you kind of realize that you need to go act uh, and, and the sooner is better. Um, so yeah, it's- uh, And maybe the solution is going forward, have a few banks so that you're not- thinking, oh my gosh, this is all of our yeah. money. What are we going to do? I have to take it out. You know, you're sort of like, let's ride this out. Seems like it's going to be okay. We don't need it to make payroll. We can make payroll with the other account. Yeah, I think you have to run kind of companies in a resilient way. And I don't think anybody thought of about payment ops and financial kind of operations. And like the, that's an area that you have to think about as well. Um, obviously, you, you do that from a, you know, uh, you know, as far as your team and as far as like your technology and infrastructure and things like that. Uh, but now you have to worry about that from the financial. Well, this is well. a little bit obscure, but have you noticed your customers kind of going towards the big national banks and avoiding the regional ones just as a precaution, which just sort of leads to this, like, is that the kind of consolidation that's good for the whole ecosystem if everybody wants JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and not any of these regional banks? Yeah, there's certainly been a discussion about let's move funds into the, the big four yeah. banks in the U.S. I think the reality is SVB is such an amazing partner. Uh, and and I, I should say they may they may be again. We don't know quite what it, yeah. SVB looks like under the First Citizens banner in in a few months. But uh, but but SVB has been such an amazing partner in enabling. I mean, like even our story, like we 
as I shared, like we were, you know, we were sort of nobodies and we were able to go partner with this bank and we, and they, and we got introductions to other clients that, uh, pretty quickly from them. So like, I think there's an element of, uh, being a good partner to Silicon Valley does require a certain unique, like different mindset and not to say that the big banks can't have it, but it's not natural to right. them. It's not, it's not something that they've done historically. That's what I was thinking. Like people might get, you know, there might be this period of nervousness where they really want to be at the big four. And then gradually they're going to miss that. They're going to miss how uh, understanding and how these banks, these regional banks really got them. And then maybe they'll they'll come back to some degree. I mean, obviously, I don't think the, those lessons yeah. will be undone, but I agree with you. I think people really will want those again, those pers- that, that, that part of that regional banking. Dimitri, I have a question about your background that I was just so curious about. Um, I was looking at your application, and I saw (laughs) that after Stanford, you were like an entrepreneur in residence somewhere, an analyst at a VC firm. Then you got your MBA at Harvard. And I'm curious to know what those things, your MBA, your working at VC firms, how did they prepare you, if at all, for what you're doing at Modern Treasury? Well, I'd worked at a couple of startups. That was actually the bigger part of my uh, background was watching companies, you know, from the inside as, as an employee, watching them okay. scale from 10 people when I joined uh, Better Place, which is an electric car infrastructure company, to about 600 when I left. And so watching all the people stuff is actually the stuff that I think is the most complicated about scaling organizations. And I think watching that was super helpful. Now, a lot of his pattern matching is just really spending a little bit of time at, uh, at, at a venture fund helped me see companies like what is a good company at a certain stage look like and not what is it? Look, what does it look like to pitch a VC? So all of that, I think, has contributed to us being able to come in and uh, build modern treasury up in a relatively smooth way uh, from the from the beginning because it wasn't like the very first time that that I'd seen that. And you know, business school for me was a way to go explore and, and learn about other industries. And by far, my favorite thing about modern treasury is that we get to go power all these companies and get to learn about them and get to help them uh, in, in all different industries. Like we're helping companies in healthcare and education and real estate and cyber insurance. And, and so I think that that being sort of a business nerd and just like learning about how these things work and what are the challenges that are different and how are they the same and how are they different between different industries is something that uh, obviously like the business school case method and all that is sort of just that on steroids. And I think modern treasury is a little bit of that on steroids as well. So um, hopefully that's something that comes through when we're helping companies and actually helping them come up with the right architecture for how to build these things at a very mechanical level, which is where modern treasury comes in. Like, where do the funds actually go? But it obviously is much, much more than that. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of times, and and Paul might even disagree with me. I think he'd say, oh, go start a startup right out of college. But I feel like if I could tell someone what the ideal timing would be, it would be go to university, make lots of friends, study lots of things, expose yourself to a lot, and then go get like a little, go out into the world and get a little business experience. Ideally work at a startup where you can observe what one is like and all the crazy things that happen. Learn about what problems are out there. Cause if you guys hadn't have worked at Lending Home, you might not have felt this pain point. I think I would agree with Paul. I don't know if you would agree with it, but I, I think I would agree with him. I think that I've been thinking a lot about what is the difference between intensity and consistency and which one's more important to be a good founder. And intensity, maybe to define intensity, there's, you know, you see intensity where somebody comes in and they're like obsessed with this idea and they're sort of, it's it's very hyped up and that's all they can think about. And that doesn't always last, right? Like at some point you're sort of like over it. And then you see that oftentimes, and we just went through a phase and I think 2020, 2021, where like a lot of people in Silicon Valley were like very intensely excited about technology. And it's like, when you look at the people that build meaningful things, like it just takes a long time. Um, and you look at, uh, you know, what Sam's doing with OpenAI, when you look at um, something like, you know, Elon and Starship, like he was working on Starship in 2003 or four. So like, yeah, of course he brought intensity at certain moments when he was like sleeping on the floor of the factory. 
but you didn't do that for 20 years. And I think the media and journalists oftentimes like get attracted to the really intense moment. And when you start a company and you want to go build and like solve a problem in a big, in a big way, you kind of have almost consistency is just as important as like, how are you going to stick with it for a very long time? Uh, and I don't know how you test for that. I don't know how you select for that. I don't know if that matters, but. It does matter. It, it is a huge problem. I mean, startups are a very long game, except in the best case scenarios. And in order for a human being to endure such an intense long game, we have to figure out, you know, you have to figure out how to make it doable for a, you know, 20 year period, 10 years at the minimum. I, know. I would phrase this a similar way listening to you talk, Dimitri, like the huge takeaway here is you're scratching your own itch, right? You found a problem, you want to fix it. And so I think you don't know when you're going to get itchy <laughs> right after college because you figured out something that you want to, you know, you figured out or five years into your career because you have said like, this bothers me, I want to fix it. So I think that that's why the timing question ends up just being super personal. Can, can I ask a super random question? This is something I really always kind of uh, am curious about. So you used to be turnkey treasury, or maybe you were just turnkey for a very short time, but I'm always interested in names. Yeah, well, we struggled with the name and we applied as turnkey treasury and uh, we got in and we hadn't incorporated yet. And we just realized that that name has a problem, which is uh, when, you know, in NYC, oftentimes people refer to teams as like the yep, name of yep. the company, right? It's like the Stripes, it's the Airbnbs. And nobody oh, yeah. heard the end. So we were the turkeys. <laughs> and like, we didn't want to be the turkeys. <laughs> and, the uh, turkey. and so, so we were like, we do not want to be <laughs> no. the turkeys. We got to fix that somehow. Um, and so people are just confused. They're like, why is it, you know, why, why turkey? Like, what does it have to do with anything? And so. Um, <laughs> they really yeah. said, why turkey? Well, why because. Tur because turkey yeah. So anyway, so we, we, re we renamed it. We were kind of looking for a name. And, and, and Matt oh, was no. on a flight and he was on instant domain search, just like searching for dot coms that were available for like $7. And moderntreasury.com was available. And we're like, this it has a ring to it. Like, it works. And so um, we, we, we got the dot com and then we. Uh, re rename the company, or I should say, we named the company as incorporated. Super glad I asked that question. Oh, that's so <laughs> I know I had no idea. Well, that must have been very at the. Was that even before YC started? Like you were accepted and then did this? Yeah. Because if you yeah, were incorporating, it, was, it must have been immediately yeah, like that you're like May May fifth or something, and I think we started like yeah, June first, yeah. maybe. Like we cannot be the turkeys. <laughs> no way. Yeah. No. <laughs> Because you are the modern treasuries. Like if I said, oh, we're going to go see the modern treasuries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not doing work stuff? In terms uh, of thinking about longevity, what do you like to do in your downtime? I love spending time outdoors. So I think a big release for me and a big way to kind of like unplug is to just go and go hiking, go skiing, go rafting, go somewhere that's, you know, far away, not in the city and, 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 uh, just spend time outdoors, which being in the Bay area is a pretty good place for that. Is that a, is that a photo of Yosemite, like El Capitan <laughs> behind you? It is. It is. Yeah. My sister lives out right outside the national park. So I'm spending a lot of time there. Um, actually just went rafting down the Merced river, which it's <gasps> been such a crazy I was snowpack say, that year. Scary. That, like, the waters and the, the rivers, well, the rivers oh. are just so, uh, yeah. full of water right now. It's, it's like the best yeah. time to go. So there's some rivers that are dammed and so they're like planned release and you can go whenever, but there's certain rivers like the Merced that are free flowing. And so you kind of have to catch your season, like, like, you know, May or something is like the best time to go. So really, are you good? Are you a good whitewater rafter? Uh, I'm de I'm getting decent. How about your sister? Yeah, the same. We did a Grand Canyon trip in 2019. Uh, actually it was, it was, you know, we'd start, we started MT and we'd, we grew to about 10 people. And then um, we ended up deciding I get an opportunity to go on a private trip down the Grand Canyon, which is like two weeks with no cell connection or anything. And I remember being like, oh, should I do this? Or is this kind of to the consistency point? Like, is this going to be like me just ignoring my duty as mm -hmm. like a founder? And I'm so glad I did it because it's one of those trips that's a kind of a, an amazing trip for of a lifetime. Um, but, you know, it's a good stress test for the team. Make sure that like, everything is fine without me. You don't really yeah. need me. Um, yep. I'm kind of curious, like, what's the future for Modern Treasury? Like, what are your, what, what's next? 
Well, we're starting to work with much bigger companies. I think one of the things that is just so interesting is um, this whole trend of payments starting and ending in software is only accelerating. And a lot of, um, shall we say, sleepy industries are kind of waking up that they need to go uh, revamp some of their software systems. And so we get to be part of some of those conversations. There's a new payment rail coming to the US called FedNow. Um, and so if you think about payments in the U.S. specifically, they're pretty slow. A lot of other countries have much faster payment rails that are real time. They're 24-7. They don't have like a three-day settlement period. And the Federal Reserve is working on fixing that. And FedNow is this new payment rail that uh, is launching in July. And so when you think about revamping like every kind of business of how actual payments happen, there's a huge wave that we are very excited to help uh, companies w kind of think through and figure out what's the right way to do it. And, and the banks as well, right? Like the banks have to figure out how to serve customers, the customers have to figure out how to work with banks. Um, very few people are like really thinking about this uh, day in, day out, and especially across all the different kind of banking institutions that we get to work with. So um, it's, a, it's a pretty exciting time in this nerdy world of payments. I think this sounds like a super interesting time to be in the banking business just because it's like stagnated maybe for a while, and then there's just going to be a ton of change, which you guys are in a really interesting position to to capitalize on that and do all kinds of interesting stuff. I know. And I have to say, like, sometimes I get most excited about companies that are doing this sort of difficult technology that's sort of, I keep saying it, but unsexy, you know, not consumery, but it's so important. So many people need it. Like, I just get super jazzed. Jessica, I don't know if you remember this. I think you told me a story. This was like, you had written Founders at Work, and I think you were figuring out how to, like, f actually fund companies, and you were, like, getting the paper checks for like the YC investments and you had to go to the, <laughs> you had to go to like the bank to get the paper checks and, and incorporate and when you were just getting started. And oh I God. mean, in some ways the product bar is not very high. You know, there's, there's ways to improve that. This is like embarrassing, but you know, back in 2005 and I honestly, I feel like we still did it through 2007. We had the regional Cambridge, I forget it was like the bank of Cambridge or whatever. Um, I set up a retail account for Y Combinator, um, had little checkbooks that said, you know, Y Combinator, um, Garden Street, all of that. We'd fund the company, Car Carolyn. I'd, I, I would help them fill out all yes. of the paperwork to incorporate and assign stock. And then they'd sign the Y Combinator investment docs. And I would literally like write a check to the company and there would be that, um, the carbon. what do they call it when it's, yeah. The carbon copy yeah. underneath. So like my records were the carbon right. copy on my little checkbook. I mean, surely that just doesn't seem like the way to do things, but that's how I did. The whole carbon copy thing is crazy. I just I just found out as such a random, crazy like fact. Do you know why when you go to restaurants in the, in the U.S. at least – you get two receipts, like you get a receipt with all the line items and you get a different receipt that you have to like sign. And why? Like, why do why you? Why? They, like, why would they print twice the yeah. paper? So when Visa was started in the 1970s, they were primarily focused on like retail stores and restaurants. And remember, this was like, there was a big chunk yes. machine and there was yes. like a carbon copy thing. <laughs> yes. So yes. the funny thing about it is they were terrified that like restaurants wouldn't like adopt visa because if somebody just like literally went through the trash and saw what the best selling items were they could get the carbon copies and actually know like what the best selling items were at every place that was an actual objection remember this is like pre-digital there's no like centralized cloud anything so they were like terrified that nobody would adopt it and so they said we're gonna split it in two thing you have to store is this thing that has the like the signature but it has no information about what the person bought and they can throw away the other one that actually has all this like, you know, confidential information <laughs> about, uh, you know, that like somebody ordered orange chicken. And so that's the reason. That's the reason. Wow. Yeah. So the next 50 years. I was going to say 50 years <laughs> later, we're still I mean, doing this? Yeah. And there's companies that are helping like reconcile, like get the line items out and try to reconnect it to the thing. And like, I mean, we do some of that. And it's like, that that's the reason why in the credit card world- You could literally walk into and a restaurant like, and say like, what does everybody get here? What's what's your best seller? And like the waitress will tell you, like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't believe that. Yeah. Oh, 
You know, this kind of brokenness just leads me to believe there's like fertile ground for new companies right. everywhere, and new ideas everywhere in this area. Because <laughs> yeah. nobody revisited for 50 years. Like, like that's such a long time. <laughs> well, I'm so happy that you guys are doing so well. And um, I was fascinated to hear about all that stuff over the SVB weekend. I love the inside scoop about what's going on. Really glad to talk to you today and thank you for coming on. Yeah, great, great to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Dimitri. Bye. Bye. Carolyn, that was so much fun talking to Dimitri. Yeah, he's great. Isn't he great? I can't believe that I've known him since 2006. I had forgotten that. Isn't it fun to go back and find these weird old emails of like, your prior self talking about something, you know, that you don't even do anymore. <laughs> yes, but it just felt so unreal. And especially how he was like, can you send me something that legitimizes this to like the Stanford administration? You know, yeah, it's funny, yeah. though, like, believe it or not, if I had to tell you in the first five years of YC what one of the biggest pain points for me personally was, it was securing an auditorium for startup school. That caused me the most stress. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, facility rental remains shockingly um, inconvenient and annoying. Well, it wasn't rental, Carolyn. This is why it was so stressful. Oh, it's free. It was free because <laughs> right. we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford right. an event space, like an auditorium right. like that. So we'd partner with Stanford, with one of their undergrad organizations, right. bases, which was wonderful to work with. And by the way, we funded like 10 presidents, past presidents of bases. Oh, that's, like, that's a cool statistic. You know, Yin Yin was one and yeah. um, there are a whole bunch of, there are a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Anyway, um, so we'd partner with bases. They then would, as a, as a Stanford group, would secure the auditorium. And then Y Combinator would do all the work, basically. Yeah, you yeah. know, so that the students wouldn't have to do it. Um, right. But it, but it was always like a three month wait for the administration to grant the auditorium on the date we wanted, and it was incredibly stressful. Yeah, and it sounds like the what the auditorium doesn't exist anymore. They just rip it down and build they something new. Ripped it down, and it was the oh. nicest auditorium. It had five hundred and ninety five seats and almost floor to ceiling windows. Yeah. And so the light in this auditorium, it was just a great size and very light filled and very cheerful. Hmm. I have no idea what's what's on there now. But anyway, hmm. so Dimitri and I go way back yeah. and, you know, we always used to joke. He always seemed, you know, a lot older than he actually was. Um, and <laughs> it's true. That's that's how I remember him as as sort of wiser you yeah. know, wise man and older than his his time. But I'm so happy that he did a startup that YC funded them and that they're doing so well. Yeah, it's great. And I, and I was totally sincere. I actually think uh, um, the banking industry is, uh, you know, unsexy, like you said, but there, I do think it seems like there's just going to be a lot of new different stuff coming up in this, in this industry. And so he, I think they're sort of perfectly positioned to take advantage of all the changes that are probably coming. Yeah. Well, that was awesome and so great to catch up with him. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'll see you see you at the next one. See, see you next time. Bye. Hey, okay, bye. bye.